Welcome to Fearless with Mark and Amber, the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. A podcast with the mission to educate, motivate, and inspire others to stand in their purpose and watch what the Lord will do. I'm your co-host, Amber Archer. Joining me today is my husband and business partner, Mark. Here I am. (laughs) If this is your first time listening, welcome. We are delighted that you are here. This podcast is about you, and we cannot thank you enough for listening as we've been going through and doing our educating part of our mission as we share the journey we've been on the last two years of making an investigative documentary film like Inwood Drive. So, Inwood Drive, you ask? (laughs) (laughs) it's a very raw and sobering look at abortionists and the industry practices specifically indiana's most prolific abortionist george klopfer who made himself infamously known in 2019 after he passed away and his family discovered over 2,000 medically preserved fetal remains among his personal belongings in abandoned car We happen to be the only ones to ever sit down with the man for an interview or to have recently been inside his Fort Wayne clinic since its closing in 2013. So today's conversation is going to be interesting as we explore the life of George Klopfer, the abortionist. Indeed. Chapter chapter five. So this is we're talking through the companion book to the film, Mm -hmm. also called Inwood Drive. And we're going to talk about chapter five, which is entitled... From Dresden to Fort Wayne, George Klopfer's Rise to Prominence. Mm -hmm. And honestly, this is just kind of where things get weird. I I don't know how else to frame it. Mm -hmm. There's an awful lot of um, uh, almost too unbelievable to be true aspects of George Klopfer's story and his family. Um, and before I start on this, I have to give a shout out to Sheila, uh, Doherty, Mm -hmm. who, uh, was, uh, contacted us just out of the blue. And, uh, when the news broke about Klopfer and somehow she had found out, uh, I think it was after we were on Glenbeck and she, uh, contacted us and said, uh, I have more information on the Klopfer family. Are you interested? Mm Mm-hmm. And I said, sure, you know, what else you got? I mean, I, and I'll be honest, I thought that, that I had, I had a fair understanding of George and his family because we did, we had interviewed him, Mm -hmm. sat down with him and interviewed him. But, uh, what she sent over was more than mind blowing. Yeah. Uh, so I really appreciate Sheila and she, she didn't ask for anything. She just said, you know, I, I'm just fascinated with this story and I want to, I want to show you what I've found. Yeah. And so what Sheila found was, uh, through a lot of FOIA document requests. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think what's interesting is that so often those of us who oppose abortion, we get frustrated that anyone would think that killing innocent life in the womb is acceptable and rightly so. I mean, often we just feel defeated because we don't know what to do. So, you know, the most immediate threat are those who are actually doing the killing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, who is who is that? That's George. You know, and there's a Sun Tzu quote that says the opportunity of defeating the enemy is provided by the enemy himself. And for anybody who doesn't know who Sun Tzu is, he was a Chinese military strategist and general who authored the book, The Art of War. 
And it's a great read if you're interested. Mm -hmm. And I am very proud of you for quoting Sun Tzu. (laughs) It was the first book that (laughs) popped into my mind when I was thinking of defeating the enemy. Because, you know, here we are, we have to like dive deep into the Mm -hmm. life of the abortionist. And the things that we have found, you just, it's unbelievable. Yeah. If And... I, and I, Sun Tzu, there's another great quote from Sun Tzu, The Art of War. Uh, and this is one of those books that's been, I mean, it's obviously been around for a long time. Um, but it became popular again, I think in the mid seventies through mid eighties in, with the corporate crowd mm-hmm. in, in the, the U S especially. And, um, uh, because it is, it's one of those books that when you study it, you see all of these parallels to business and marketing and things mm-hmm. like that. And one of the quotes uh, that I've committed to memory from Sun Tzu is where he says, given enough rope, an enemy will frequently hang himself. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting tie-in to our conversation that we had with George in his clinic. We mm-hmm. didn't really have to prod him too much. We just started letting out rope. Oh, no, he was ready. And he started just unloading on us just everything. So we... We didn't have to try very hard. We just gave him the opportunity and let him go. Mm-hmm. Um, I say, so why don't, you st- why don't you tell us about chapter five that you wrote so from chapter, Dresden to Fort Wayne? Yeah, so chapter five is is really the history of George and his family. Um, if there's anything that I know for certain about people like George Klopfer, it's that they're nothing if not predictable. So at some point, a man like George Klopfer wants everyone to know exactly what he's done and why. Uh, he was proud of his accomplishments. And I think it's part of human nature, but it's also part of, I think, the nature of men. Um, and as the gender that I think is more specifically driven by career accomplishments, men have this innate desire to tell the world not only what they've done, but why they've done it and how they did it. And most importantly, and I saw this with George, why you should admire them for it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we both knew that given where George was at this point in his then non-existent career, chances were better than ever than they'd ever been to get him to spill his guts. And that's pretty much what he did mm-hmm. for us. Yeah, because, I mean, you would think, okay, honestly, let's just like honest conversation you're going and talking to an abortionist somebody mm-hmm. i mean how many of us go and even think that we're going to go and sit down and ask this man about his life who cares right because so many of us are just so disgusted who cares we all should care we all should care we need to understand you cannot defeat an opponent unless you understand them when you you understand who they are, where they're coming from and principally what their motivations are, Mm -hmm. then you're, you have the beginnings of being able to not only deal with them, but oppose them and and then defeat them. Mm -hmm. And that was, and speak their language and speak their language. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that was really evident in, in how George, was taken down. I mean, the whole mm-hmm. story of the film is that's what fascinated us about it was how in the world did a grassroots effort take this man down and his entire practice mm-hmm. it was because they understood him mm-hmm. and they had studied him 
and they uh, they understood where his weaknesses were mm -hmm. and given enough time they will always stumble and that's exactly what happened to george a um, little bit of history on george and for those of you who if you really want to hear the bulk of this there is an audiobook and mm -hmm. we have we have done the, gone through this audiobook on previous podcasts called interview with the abortionist mm -hmm. so you can go back and look for that you can find it's in the podcast um shows so if you go back it's notes. in a previous episode and you can also find the entire audiobook that's a free download on our website fearlessfeatures.org um so and there's a lot of a lot of that audio of this particular story that George told and this was the first really eye-opening thing for us. Uh let me let me just read a paragraph here um from chapter 5. So on February 13th, 1945, the allied forces began a multi-day and night firebombing campaign against the city of Dresden in Germany. So this was this was towards the end of World War II. Mm -hmm. George was, we think, about five mm -hmm. um, and grew up in Dresden. And this is his first real strong recollection in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, for three days and two nights, American and British bombers firebombed the city where a then five-year-old boy named George Ulrich Klopfer was living with his aunt. He watched in terror as his city and his neighbor's homes were destroyed in the flames. That event was obviously traumatic and it was seared permanently into the mind and conscience of a young boy who would later become the monster that we would all know as the abortionist, Dr. Ulrich George Klopfer. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing an interview, a television interview, when the news broke about this and there was a a news crew that actually came down from Chicago, mm -hmm. you remember? And yeah, CBS two. I think it was CBS two from mm -hmm. Chicago. And um, the way that I, and so the they had not seen the film. Obviously, we had just finished the first cut of the film, and then all this started to break in the news. Right. Everyone was scrambling, trying to get to figure out who this man was. To figure out why, <laughs> yeah, you know, why, why, did he why do would this? he keep over two thousand fetal remains? Right, and you so know, dead babies. Yeah, and so when they when they learned of our interview, and we had already put this out in in the blog post. Oh yeah, months months earlier. before mm -hmm. that, this was a huge part of his motivations, mm -hmm. and um, and the way that I that I. I'm going to paraphrase myself, but I think what I basically said to the reporter was the gospel of George Klopfer goes like this. In the beginning, the Americans firebombed my home. Mm -hmm. And that really defined George Klopfer's worldview mm -hmm. from that point forward. Mm -hmm. So there, but there's a lot of, you know, hand wringing that's gone on through the 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 aftermath of this of you know well was this revenge was he keeping these babies uh, you know there there's why was he keeping the babies and why did he keep them at home and was his whole career uh, motivated out of revenge and after studying this man for better part of 2 years i can say unequivocally it's likely but we really don't know mm mhm the fact that when we interviewed him and he started right off with this story, yeah, 
this was an important thing that he wanted people to know. Well, and what's fascinating is, is while, you know, doing all this research and we started then researching once we found out after the fact who George was, one mm-hmm. of the first things we said after we went into his clinic and sat down and interviewed him, we left and we both said, this man's a hoarder. Yes. And so what's been interesting as we've studied hoarding mm-hmm. is a lot of people, most 99, I would say 100% of them, like all the cases that we've studied, they have some sort of trauma mm-hmm. or traumatic event that happens in their life. And it could, you know, if it goes unresolved and, and not dealt with, that's where the hoarding comes into play. Yeah. So you see, like, we had no idea, like we didn't know about, obviously we didn't know about the fetuses, you know, nobody knew about them. Um, but this man, the way he lived when the news broke and you saw, I mean, floor to ceiling of stuff in yeah. his home. There was one room in his home that was clean, told to us by the family friend and from the news reports. The one clean room was his wife's. Mm-hmm. Um, so this he had a problem from the beginning. And I would say it was most of his entire life. Yeah. He had junk everywhere. Um, in fact, I remember, uh, one of the family members who was helping to clean, who, who, who was there when the discovery was made. Mm -hmm. And he said, he said, George didn't throw anything away. Yeah. What does that sound like? That's a, that's a severe hoarder. That's, oh, absolutely. That describes hoarders. Mm-hmm. In, uh, One of the worst of the worst cases. Right. And he described how, uh, you know, you, you would open up the oven and there were stacks of unopened mail mm-hmm. in the oven because he, he refused to throw anything away because he was suspicious of everyone. And mm-hmm. Well, um, and another thing that's interesting is, you know, we've been asked to come and uh, go and speak at a Right to Life event up mm-hmm. in Lake County. So that'll be later in the fall. But, you know, wanting to kind of parallel and see the similarities between Gosnell Mm -hmm. and Klopfer and Gosnell, from all accounts, was also a hoarder. Mm -hmm. So it's it's just really interesting. And it's kind of, you know, it's it's sad because it makes you wonder what happened in that man's life that triggered this, you know, because they just they were just possessions. They didn't mean anything. Yeah. They were, you know, these babies, these lives, these human lives, these are sick people. Yeah. It's just trash. Yeah. Right. You threw it away. I'm going to pick it up. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's how he lived his life. Yeah. Um, there was an interesting theory that was floated um, when, when the news first broke and there was, there was an article that was written about the, about Inwood Drive uh, on, in the Daily Caller. Mm-hmm. And... Um, then that got picked up on, on the blaze. Mm-hmm. And then a few days later, um, uh, Glenn and Stu on the Glenn Beck program were talking about that article yeah. and Stu actually had an interesting theory that he floated that I had not actually thought of. And this was before we had had a chance to talk to them on the show. He was just, because there was a, the, uh, Mary, uh, Olihan, who wrote the article on the daily Caller, I had let her listen to George's audio describing Dresden. Mm-hmm. And in that, and if you listen to the audiobook, you'll hear this. And he talks about 
how years later when uh, they went to rebuild this church mm-hmm. in Dresden and they found bodies from World War II. Yeah. And Stu had an interesting theory that, you know, what if he was collecting these babies as some kind of recreation of yeah. the basement of this church or oh, that gives me chills like literally I, my my legs are eat up just yeah. it's ugh. i don't know and it was it was i had to hand it to him i had not actually even thought of that mm-hmm. uh it was an interesting theory i don't know yeah we don't know you'll and you'll never know no one will ever know at this yeah. point i mean yeah. the man is is deceased and yeah so the but where this gets really odd is when you we talk about you mean it gets worse <laughs> it does get <laughs> it, well it gets very strange let's talk about oscar oh yes his dad his dad so so let's throw in here um okay so let's give the family dynamics okay so there was oscar and his mom and mm-hmm. seven kids yes all lived in germany yes from germany yes and so let me let me just read uh uh couple snippets from from the chapter here. So George's father, Oscar Klopfer, along with his wife and seven children, including George, was brought to the United States as part of Operation Paperclip. This is where it starts to get weird because this was really weird. And this was a part of the woman who reached out yes, to us. This is something that Sheila, Sheila brought uh, up. Incredible. But, yeah. And when, like I said, I thought that I knew everything there was to know when she sent this and I, I had to, I, I, I had to read through it several times. <laughs> yeah, is, just is, to digest what was happening. Seriously, the way it is. Yes. Operation Paperclip was a secret post-war program of the U S intelligence agencies that brought large numbers of German scientists to the United States to work in various defense and technology industries. One of the more famous scientists brought to America through this program was a man named Dr. Werner von Braun, arguably the father of the U.S. space program that eventually landed a man on the moon. Still others snatched up earlier out of Hitler's Germany went to work for the top secret nuclear weapons program, which brought the United States and the world into the nuclear age. So, <laughs> any of you who know, I mean, Werner von Braun is fairly well known. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's the the father of the Saturn V moon rocket, right? Yeah. So it's this is a legit program. Um, Oscar Klopfer was brought over through this same program. Um, so while George's father Oscar was a documented member of the Nazi Party, he was not suspected of any ardent party activities or support. A 1951 intelligence document on Oscar Klopfer stated, quote, based on available records, subjects were not war criminals, were not ardent Nazis, and in the opinion of the United States High Commissioner for Germany, are not likely to become security threats to the United States, end quote. Isn't it sad? I mean, let me just stop. Mm -hmm. A security threat. Okay, they may not have been a security threat to the United States. Mm -hmm. But look at the man that came out of that family, the things that he saw, and the tens and thousands of children that he murdered. Yes. Like, so sad. Yeah, it really is. I mean, and and framing it in the context of, in historical context, in 1951, 
This was not on anyone's radar. No. This was, they were worried. No, it's not until years, 20, you know, 20 some years later that yeah. it would even become an issue. Yeah. This would be, this would be like, uh, you know, uh, if there were Al Qaeda scientists that were of value, you mm-hmm. know, they would certainly right. vet them right. through the security measures to make sure that they weren't going to be re-radicalized, for example. Mm-hmm. And so that's really what they were talking about in this U.S. intelligence report. Um, so Oscar was cleared for entry Indian to the United States through the program to go to work in his given field of chemical engineering. According to recently declassified Intel documents, Oscar Klopfer was a research engineer at IG Farben Industries, where he had worked during the war and presumably before the war started. This is where it gets weird. This is where it gets weird. Ironically, IG Farben Industries not only developed and manufactured the poison gas used to murder Jews by the millions at Nazi concentration camps... They were also responsible for the development of both sarin and taben nerve agents. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oscar's specific role in those is not known. But he did hold several patents for his work at IG Farben Industries. Yes. So who knows? I mean, that's where it all gets weird. I mean, I know a lot of people have a lot of different positions in companies, and you just don't know. Yeah, you just don't know. And it, I... It, it, I don't, I don't have any way to verify any further right. with that. Uh, maybe someone down the line will hear this and say, I can verify or not. Um, it was, uh, and also contrary to several popular internet theories about George's father being part of the SS, uh, the U.S. intelligence services verified that he was not a part of the German government or military. Now, there was the head of the SS his last name was Klopfer. Right. And that's where this theory came from. In yeah. fact, we had people calling was us. It, was it the, the head or he or he was like second in charge? I think he was second in charge. He as was. As I recall. I, I don't know because we didn't go too far down that bunny trail after we, you know, we found out who George's dad really was. We're like, sorry, guys, this this is not legit. <laughs> right. Right. There, I, I don't remember. Uh, but anyway, he was he was first or second in command of Hitler's SS, mm-hmm. which was, you know, the stormtroopers. They right. were they were the ones they were. The shock troops that did all the damage. Well, and I think it goes back to, you know, earlier in this chapter when it was when you're talking about when when you're collecting information on an investigative documentary like this, Mm -hmm. you you can trust people, but you have to verify everything. Right. So, you know, okay, I trust you so far um, and what you're saying could be true, but. I actually need documentation. I need right. to prove that that what you're saying is is correct. And and it turns out the people who were contacting us and giving us this information, it was not true. And right. and we did we did politely, you know, send them a, a message back and say, "No, I'm sorry. Here's the documents to prove otherwise." Right, right. Because we want to stop things stop like lies. that from spreading. <laughs> yeah, stop the lies. Yeah, and and you have to put things in context too. I mean, when we when George told us his whole childhood story in Dresden and everything. And I talk about this in the audiobook. I didn't I had heard the story going into this, but I didn't believe it. Yeah. I thought this is I mean this is just a bunch of hearsay. Hearsay, a bunch of theories, you know. Conspiracy. And people saying, you know, he 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 was he's a Nazi and mm-hmm. and his, you know, you know his dad was a Nazi and going, "Okay, well, whatever." <laughs> yeah. Well, turns out there 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 was 
a lot of truth in some of it and partial truth in other parts of it. I mean, yes, his father was a Nazi, but to survive in Germany in that era, you had to be. Yeah, you had to be. Um, You have to distinguish what it was to be a Nazi versus to be part of the Nazi and you I know, think, and, and it's, and I don't want to say fascinating. It's so sad to see what's happening in America and people thinking that, that communism is that somehow this great thing. Mm-hmm. Like you have no idea. Do a little research. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, it's, it's, it was quite amazing. Um, so to finish up on Oscar, Oscar was recruited to work in the U.S. for Dr. Oliver Burke to aid in his research and development program for the U.S. Army mm-hmm. in the field of synthetic rubber for military applications. Dr. Burke, who worked for the Copolymer Corporation, coordinated the U.S. government's synthetic rubber research program initiated by the Department of Defense. Oscar's extensive background in organic chemistry made him a valuable asset for the U.S. military. His relocation was considered to be, quote, in the national interest. And he was sponsored for relocation to the United States by the The United States Army. Mm -hmm. So that's how George and his family got here. Um, They came in uh, through the port of Detroit, I believe. And port of New York. It may have been New York, but anyway, but then they They ended up up in Detroit, ended up in Detroit. And that's where George grew up in the Mm fifties. Um, when school have a high school yearbook, we have a, yeah. So one of the things that Sheila sent along was she had found George's high school yearbook, Mm -hmm. um, uh, from Bloomfield Hills high school in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. Mm -hmm. Um, he graduated in 1959. And uh, quotes from his yearbook, there there are pictures of George as a teenager. Yep. In the yeah. yearbook, because yeah. he was he was an all-star athlete. He was a good student yeah. and an all-star athlete. Uh, one of the line, quotes under his picture said, record-breaking track record, tra- a record-breaking track runner, twice a letter winner, a bit ambition to someday represent the USA in the Olympics, Plans to become a chemical engineer, mm-hmm. like his dad. He was a very, very bright, very bright young man. Yeah. Um. So, you fast forward here with George, um, and he basically he went to he went to college uh, first in Michigan, and then he went to Chicago, and then this was uh, in the. Uh, late 60s and going into the early 70s mm-hmm. and when abortion was legalized i say and then early 70s yeah, 1973 Roe v. Wade. yep um he saw easy money yeah, an opportunity yeah in the chapter the this chapter of the book there's a lot of we have a lot of um quotes from letters of recommendation he had mm-hmm. very high commendations for his uh his academic performance and his medical practice, his medical practice. He was, he was by all accounts, a very smart, very, uh, accomplished, um, up and coming physician. Mm-hmm. And then he discovered the highly lucrative practice of abortion. Oh, well, you have to go back to the first one he, he ever did. 
Yeah. I so, mean, you got, you've got a you've got a paragraph in here. Where did it go? Yeah. So his by his own account, one, I don't think it was the first. I, I don't think George remembers remembered everything exactly. Perhaps not. But one of his very first abortions was a girl who she was either ten or twelve. It depended on which time, which version of the story you heard from George. Uh, say a 10 year old girl in Chicago who was 21 weeks pregnant. Mm -hmm. She had been raped by her uncle and George, uh, did the abortion in the hospital. And this is the, this is the sad and twisted tale where George used this. And, and I know that he used this over and over again, because not only did he tell us this story, he also, I also found him telling this story in court transcripts mm -hmm. in his medical license hearing. Oh, and also to the reporter that, that got him on the, on the sidewalk out right. there outside the courthouse. Right. Mm -hmm. So he would point to this often as, uh, this example of this was so unfair mm -hmm. and, uh, that she shouldn't have had to deal with this. And so he helped her get through this, this trauma and what made him especially mad was that the the girl's parents would not report the rape. Mm -hmm. And it's just irony of ironies that that's... Yeah, because, because you look at it and you're like, you know, two wrongs don't make a right. Right. You know, you're not, you're not actually solving anything. You're right. just making things worse. And irony of ironies is that that is exactly what George went down for yeah. at the end because mm -hmm. he was covering up child sexual abuse. Yep. Um, let me read another uh, paragraph here as we're getting down to the end here. But by all accounts, George had showed great promise from the very beginning of his medical career. His senior research project at Wayne State University dealt with mass spectrometry of organic compounds. He was a clinical instructor for the Chicago Osteopathic Hospital from 1972 until around 1978. He was a member of the American Osteopathic Association, American Chemical Society, the Illinois Association of Osteopathic Physicians and Surgeons, on and on and on and on. Early on, he did all the right things, said all the right things, but um, where this got really, really hard to stomach was, um, and we talk about this all the time with our with our children, is show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Absolutely. And one of the articles that came up in our research was uh, the story about uh, this other physician in the Chicago area that George was basically partners with, and his name was Dr. Ming Kao Ha. Uh, let me just read this paragraph here. In 1978 was also a pivotal year in George's career from the standpoint of being exposed for not only the monster he had already become, but also for the company he would keep. A November 15th, 1978 article in the Chicago Sun-Times... So this was, this was in the Chicago Sun-Times. Profiled one of the most infamous abortion doctors of the day, Dr. Ming Kao Ha. Dr. Ha had become known for being one of the fastest abortionists in the business. That's quite a record to have, right? Yes, it gets worse. Add to that, he was also known as being the most painful abortionist in the business because he regularly performed the procedures on patients without anesthetics. 
He was in such a rush to do the procedure and move on to the next customer, he didn't see any point in waiting for an anesthetic to take effect. In fact, he was even documented as having performed two abortions simultaneously. That's just... You, you wonder why there's a need for regulation? Ugh. I mean, when the Supreme Court who just shut down yes. the law in Louisiana regulating abortion clinics. Do you mm-hmm. see why? Yes. <laughs> um, while George was working at the Chicago Loop Mediclinic, the same clinic as the infamous Dr. Ha, they would have competitions, Klopfer and Ha. They would have competitions to see who could perform the most abortions in a single day. Ha and Klopfer would make marks on their pant legs to keep count of their procedures. If George found out that Dr. Ha had more patients finished than he did, he would rush through his own procedures to catch up. At the end of the day, they would add up their tallies and know how much to demand to be paid. I can't even, it's just wickedness unhinged. Yeah. Like, it just, that's disgusting. Um, George also followed Dr. Ha's example when it came to malpractice suits. One of Ha's early patients in 1973, named Rosa Taft, had such severe complications after her abortion procedure from Dr. Ha that she ended up spending eight months in the hospital, losing all of her reproductive organs, plus her spleen, plus her colon. Now, this was Dr. Ha, but this was George's buddy Mm -hmm. that he worked with. Um, To wrap this up, George himself had a long list of complaints and malpractice suits that followed him around throughout his entire career as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some of the terms that would come up in his malpractice suits, major complications, heavy bleeding, severe pain, unable to urinate after abortion, surgery without anesthesia, punctured uterus, uh, trans abdominal hysterectomy, severe hemorrhaging, shock. Uh, these are but a few of the complaints and complications from George Klopfer's gory years of providing safe and legal abortion services for women. Um, but it was the complication that was known as the incomplete abortion that would eventually become the thread that unraveled the entire fabric of George Klopfer's career. Mm-hmm. And that's where later on uh, Dr. Jeffrey Cly got involved because he saw Having to deal with this. Yeah. Having to deal with the mess and, and these, these women who were suffering avoidable, Mm -hmm. avoidable. What's the word I'm looking for? Injuries. Yeah. And, and Jeff even said when he went in to meet with Klopfer and Klopfer basically was trying to normalize Mm -hmm. all of this and said, you know, as you know, uh, these things happen and pieces get left inside. And, you know, it's just it's just one of those things that happen. And he just kind of brushed it off. Um, really, really disturbing, to say mm-hmm. the least. But that's a summary of uh, the chapter about <laughs> chapter George's five. family history. It is. I told you, this is where it gets weird. It is. It is as disturbing as it gets. Yeah. 
Yes. So we just want to thank you guys. Thank you for joining us today and listening in. Make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening from. And you can find out more information about our investigative documentary, Inwood Drive, or listen to the free audiobook at InwoodDriveMovie.com, or you can visit our ministry's website at FearlessFeatures.org. So we, uh, we just... We, we enjoy doing this. Like, this is part of our, our weekly, just so that we can talk to you guys. Mm-hmm. It's always fun. And we love to hear from you, too. So yeah. drop so, us a line. Yeah. So if, we'd also love if you'd take 60 seconds to leave us a review or a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud. And we'd just love to hear from you. Only, As always. Only five-star reviews are allowed. <laughs> that's, that's hey, you only. know what? There's plenty of trolls out on the internet. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. As always, have a blessed week. We'll be here again next week to share Chapter 6, The Webster Street Protests. Have a blessed week. Live with passion. <laughs>